A few weeks ago, Derek had some family in town, and they wanted to go uh, fishing. And so Derek invited me fishing. We'd gone last summer with Gordy, and I uh, shared with some of you that I caught the biggest fish of the journey. And uh, I'm just going to share that every opportunity I get, because I am not a fisherman at all. I know nothing about it. I just know how to reel in uh, when something's on the line. And I don't even know if that's the right phrase. Uh, but Derek, Derek really likes to fish. And so the fact that I caught a bigger fish than Derek uh, when we went just is something I'm never going to let him forget. And so that was last summer we went. Well, Derek had some family in. He was nice enough uh, to invite me to go out fishing with them. And I agreed. And he also invited Gordy. And Gordy was scared because uh, last year, not only did I catch a bigger fish than him, but so did Derek. He caught the smallest fish. And so he wouldn't go. Uh, so I really, I really hand it. I really hand it to Derek that even though he suffered a humiliating defeat at my hands last year, he invited me to go back fishing with him again this summer, and I'm happy to report I went, and I'm happy to report I caught the biggest fish again. So I am, uh, I'm just going to keep sharing that. Uh, I can't help it, the Lord's blessing, and um, just share that with him because I know it's just like salt in a wound, and that's just the type of guy I am. So uh, we went, we went, and we go insanely early. I'm not sure why we don't go at night. Uh, really not sure why we don't go at night, but we went insanely early in the morning, and we're out there and just kind of uh, taking in our surroundings, and I look, and it's fascinating, the skill and the, the, just everything that goes into it, and I look in the water, and I ask the captain, how many lines are in the water right now? And we had 18 lines in the water. There were four of us on the boat and then a captain and a, a crewmate. So I guess according to Wisconsin law, you're allowed to have three lines uh, in the water per person. And so there, there were 18 lines in the water. And how they don't all wind up a tangled mess, is, it just blows my mind. And it's, I mean, just incredible skill. And just talking about that and, and talking with the captain, the reason for the 18 lines is you never know which line the fish is going to bite. You never know which line the fish is going to bite. And we understand this principle of diversification in a number of areas in our life. Whether it's fishing, you put more lines in the water, it gives you a better chance for success that a fish is going to bite one of those lines. We understand this in, in the business world, in terms of marketing. You generally don't want to put all of your marketing just in one avenue so people spread it out through television campaigns, through internet, social media, direct, you know, whatever the case may be. But there's a, there's a diversity in how people market things. There's a diversity in how you invest. It's generally not a good idea to put all of your retirement in one stock. Most financial planners would advise against that, uh, but they would, they would want you to have a more diversified portfolio to give you the best chance of success. We understand this in training. Uh, you generally don't go to the gym and just work out one part of one part of your body. I mean, some of you guys do, and you're like, look at my guns. But any trainer's going to look at you and be like, let's develop every part of your body. And the trainer's going to want to make sure that you're working out every part of your body. And this principle of diversification is something that we see in Scripture as well. So if you have your phones or your tablets or your Bibles, I'd invite you to join with us. If you have your phones or your tablets in the Bible app, it's a free resource highly encourage you to download that and utilize it. We're going to be looking today at Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, in just a minute, as we talk about this theme of diversification and the spiritual implications of it that Jesus taught about. Now, before we get started, today's just always kind of a special day to me. August 15th, it was three years ago, August 15th, 2018, I officially started at Lakeside. And so today's always, uh, thank you, that's 
That's very kind. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, I, no, I do. Thank you. And some of you, it was, you know, required, but no, I, I appreciate it. Uh, you know, it was three years ago that I started, and every year around this time, I like us just to refocus, uh, because vision leaks, and things happen, and every year this time, as a church, and as a staff, and as a team of people on our ministry leader teams as well, we have to sit down, and we have to evaluate, are we being effective? Are we being impactful? Everything we do at Lakeside is driven by our vision, that we exist to help people move one step closer to Jesus and reach those far from him. That is why we exist. And so everything we do has to fit within that vision, that everything we do has to be moving somebody one step closer to Jesus or reaching those far from him. And if something we are doing no longer, no longer does that, even if it was something that was great, that has worked in the past, but it's no longer being effective and helping us fulfill our mission, then we have to ask some serious questions. And we have to look at, can we, re, can we adjust this? Do we have to reevaluate it? Do we have to cancel this aspect of what we're doing and reallocate our energy and our funds to something else? That's a discussion that has to happen every single year because we are laser focused on making sure that we fulfill the vision that God has called us to. And that is to help people move one step closer to Jesus and reach those far from him. And so that's something we do as a staff team. It's something we do as a team of ministry leaders. And I think it's healthy for us as a church as well to just refocus and make sure that everything we are doing aligns with the vision that God has called us to. And so that's what we're going to be looking at as we start this new series today. And we're going to begin today in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, where we read these words. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So this is how Luke 8 begins, and it's on the heels of just a powerful, powerful encounter that Jesus had had to close out Luke chapter 7. And it's a beautiful picture of a woman who was a prostitute, and she comes, and she has an encounter with Jesus, and she worships him, and she experiences forgiveness and salvation and grace all with the encounter of Jesus. And it's just a beautiful picture and a beautiful reminder that God loves you no matter what your life looks like right now. God loves you no matter what your past looks like. God loves you. And it's this beautiful picture that, that we see there unfold for us at the end of Luke chapter 7, just this, this beautiful picture of Jesus with this woman. And now we jump in to Luke chapter 8. And what we see is that Jesus is surrounded by all kinds of people. He's surrounded by all kinds of people. He's surrounded by the disciples. And the disciples were a crew made up of all kinds of different backgrounds. That's how the disciples were formed. On one hand, you had Matthew, who was a tax collector. Who in those days, tax collectors could rob from people. They were required to get a portion for the government, but whatever they said was final. And they could take from you whatever they wanted. And some of you are like, yeah, the IRS, nothing's changed. I'll let you figure that out. And then on the other hand, you had Simon the Zealot. You had a zealot who we, would, who we would say they were involved in some terrorist activities. Their desire was to overthrow the government. And here in the same band of followers, Jesus has Matthew the tax collector, the government employee, and Simon the zealot, the person dedicated to overthrowing the government. You had fishermen. 
You had all walks of life represented in the disciples, and not only the disciples. We're given a little background on some of the other people who are following Jesus. And one of the people mentioned is Mary Magdalene, who not only was sick, she was struggling with a number of infirmities that Jesus healed her of. Not only was she sick, but she was demon-possessed by seven demons. Seven, I mean, that's possessed. Seven demons that Jesus drove out of Mary. That's an issue right there. Seven of them. And Jesus casts out the demons from Mary, and she walks with Jesus. But it wasn't just people who were marginalized by society either. You had people who were well-placed. You had the household servants of Herod represented, a well-placed, powerful family represented. You had wealthy people following Jesus who provided for the ministry and provided for the followers as well. And the picture that we see here is a reminder to us that Jesus calls all people to follow him. He calls the rich and he calls the poor. He calls the healthy and he calls the sick. He calls the popular and he calls those who are marginalized. Jesus calls everyone unto himself and he doesn't restrict following him to anyone or any class of people. That's the picture that we're given. And now the story continues. And when a great crowd was gathering, verse 4 says, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. So Jesus has this big following, and now he tells a story. Jesus frequently spoke in parables. He frequently spoke, he spoke in stories. And this was primarily a farming community. So throughout the parables, we see a number of analogies and a number of stories that Jesus would use drawing upon this because it was a familiar context with the audience that he was speaking to. And Jesus tells the story of a farmer who's going out at the start of the season to plant his seed. And as he throws out the seed, some of it fell on a path where it was immediately trampled as it stepped upon. And the result of that seed is not at all what the farmer wants. The farmer doesn't want his seed wasted, and yet that's what happens here in this story. The seed makes its way onto the path where it is crushed by people walking upon. The birds are happy because they're like dinner's taken care of, and breakfast and lunch and dinner again. But the farmer, that's not at all the reason for throwing out the seed. And this is the first result of the farmer throwing out a seed. Jesus continues the story. And some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Next, Jesus says there's some seed and it fell on the rock. And as the seed falls on the rock, it grows. It grows up. There's some results that are seen, but it doesn't last. And the reason it doesn't last is because it's amongst the rock and it isn't, it isn't connected to the source that it needs to be connected with. It doesn't have a source of water to provide for it. So it isn't fully alive. And as a result, it dies and it withers away. And then Jesus goes on in verse 7. And some fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up with it and choked it. So this seed makes its way into the soil, but it's in, a, it's in a portion of the soil that also has a bunch of weeds. And as the seed grows, faster grow the weeds. And the weeds grow to a point that they're more powerful and they're larger, and they take the nutrients, and the seed isn't able to fully grow. Instead, the weeds choke it out. 
It grows, but the thorns grow faster and choke out the seed, which is what the farmer wanted to grow, not the weeds. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears, let him hear. So finally in this story that Jesus is telling, finally some of the seed makes its way into good soil. And that seed grows like it should. And that is the result that the farmer wants. There is a crop that grows, and it grows a hundredfold. That is, that is obviously the result that the farmer wishes for. He wants a crop, and what a fantastic crop this is, that the crop produces a hundred times. It's a wonderful crop. This is the result that the farmer had envisioned. This is the result the farmer had desired. And Jesus finishes this parable by saying, He who has ears, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now, if you're a little confused right now, if you're like, well, great, I came to church and I'm getting a lesson on how to farm. Fear not, all right? If you're like, I, I don't get it. You're in good company because neither did the disciples. I love it. Jesus is like, he who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples are like, yeah. What's it mean, Jesus? We got ears, but we don't get it. What's, what's it mean? What's it mean? And Jesus is going to go on and describe that. But, but before we get to that, I just want to take a quick aside. And if you've ever wondered, why did Jesus talk in parables? I mean, this is, this is kind of confusing, what, what Jesus is saying right here. That Why wouldn't Jesus just come out with it and, and be a little clearer? Why would, why would there be a source of any riddles? Why, why would he be confusing in some aspects? Why would, why would he do that? Just remember that God in his perfect timing decided when to fully reveal who Jesus is and what his mission was, uh, but the time just wasn't yet to come. And yet I love it because the disciples, they've got confusion in their mind, and they go up to Jesus and they ask him, hey, what, we have ears and we hear, but help us understand this. And Jesus is like, well, I'm going to explain it to you. And that's what we're going to see now. So Jesus explains the parable to the disciples, starting in verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. Jesus pulls back the curtain here and gives us a glimpse into the unseen realm. He gives us a glimpse into the spiritual realm that we sometimes take for granted, and we oftentimes don't think through all the implications of because we can't fully see it. But Jesus here pulls back the curtain and gives us just a glimpse for a moment inside that realm, which is very real and very present, even if it isn't automatically thought about because it's something we cannot see. And he lets us know that there is a very real war going on. There's a very real war being waged right now in the unseen realm between God and the enemy. And the enemy is actively working against the forces of God and the forces of good in order to bring about people's destruction. That's what's going on in, in this unseen realm when Jesus pulls back the curtain for us and gives us a glimpse of that. So always remember, there is constant activity being done in the spiritual realm, even though we can't always see it. And 
what does Jesus tell us about these people who Satan is working on, that the devil is working on? What does he tell us that their go-to is? Does Satan go to them with the message of, I want you to destroy everything. I want you to denounce God and claim me and spend eternity in hell with me. No. In fact, most people wouldn't sign up for that. And those that do are either institutionalized or we make documentaries about them, right? Like Satan is much more subtle than that. Satan's much more subtle than that. His message isn't, I want you to go out and be a force of destruction. No. The message of Satan is this. Do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. Becomes the message of individuality. Becomes the message of independence. Becomes the message that you choose, and don't you dare let anybody else tell you how to live your life. You do whatever feels good for you. And don't worry about what anybody else says or what anybody else does. That's the message of the enemy. And for those in this first camp that Jesus talks about, where the seed has hit the path, and it's been trampled upon, and the birds come and they take it away, it's very, very simply this. This is a group of people that would rather claim their independence. It's the group of people when confronted with the truth of Scripture and the truth of what God has done for them say, I'm good. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to be God. I choose me. I choose my path. And the picture that we're given here is that there, are those, there as those seed has been cast on a path. The truth is there, and it's been trampled upon. It's been rejected. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. These are the people where everything looks legit. These are the people that we baptize and we're excited about. These are the people by all the outward signs say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. And yet, and yet they've believed a lie. Because somewhere in their pursuit to follow Jesus, they have believed something that God never promised. They have believed that if I follow Jesus, God will make it so that my life is easy. God will make it so that my life is perfect. If I follow God, I am entering an agreement with God that I follow Him and He gives me what I want. And everything's great for a while. But as soon as trouble comes, as soon as the hardships of this world strike, they reject God and they throw in the towel because they believed a lie. And what they were believing was something that God never promised and something that God never said he would do. And these are the people that oftentimes are the most militant against following Jesus. And the reason is because there are some very real wounds there. It's oftentimes the death of someone very close 
a grave illness, being victimized, very real pain from horrible situations. They just look at and say, God, if you were real, God, if you really loved me, God, if you were true, this couldn't happen. And they reach the point where they reject him entirely. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. These are people who are preoccupied by other things. And these are oftentimes very good, moral people who live lives that you can be proud of, who live lives that we would celebrate. They seem to be, they're solid people. They're upstanding people. They're great to have in your community. You want these people as your neighbors. They're great neighbors to have. They're salt-of-the-earth people. These, I mean, they're just great people to be around, but they're missing a part of it. And the part they're missing is that their plans, their pursuit of wealth, their preoccupation with pleasure becomes more important to them than following Jesus. And rather than become a follower of Jesus all of a sudden, all of those other things takes preeminence in their lives. And they subtly miss it. Because instead of following God, they're worried about all the things of this world. It doesn't mean they're bad people. But they just don't get this part right. That everything else is more important to them. God's kind of over here. They don't have a problem with anybody who does follow God. They don't have a problem with faith. But for them, it's just not the central theme and focus of their life. Because pleasures are more important to them. And lastly, in verse 15, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. And now we get to the good soil. We get to the good soil. And here we're reminded once again, the Scripture tells us over and over and over again, time reveals the legitimacy of faith. Time reveals the legitimacy of faith. And the good soil produces the harvest a hundredfold. But it takes time. A harvest is never immediate. And that can be a frustrating thing, especially in our society, where we want results yesterday. We want things to happen overnight. You can't rush the process. It takes time. And legitimate faith is always shown to bear fruit, and it's always shown and can be seen as time reveals the legitimacy of faith. So what does all this have to do with us? And what does all this have to do with Lakeside? Well, again, we've talked about our vision, and our vision is to help people move one step closer to Jesus and reach those far from Him. 
It drives everything that we do. And I'm fascinated by this picture that God's just painted for us. I'm fascinated by this. That out of all the seed that the farmer throws, only one out of four produces the results the farmer wants. Only one out of four. Unless you're playing Major League Baseball, 25% is generally not seen as a positive thing. I mean, imagine with me, you're taking the test, and you get 25% on the test. The teachers aren't like, well, fantastic job. They're calling intervention specialists and scheduling appointments with your parents. Like, there's something gravely wrong here. You don't hang that one up on the fridge when you get home. I got 25% right. We're like, no, it's not good. And yet... The story that we're given from Jesus is one out of four soils produces the results that God wants. And this is a reminder to all of us that we can't see the heart. We can't see the heart. God can see the heart. God can see the hearts of people. But we can't see the hearts of people. So what do we need to do? Well, as people who legitimately follow God, we need to sow more seed. We need to sow more seed. Because if one out of four soils produces the results that God wants, it's all the more dependent on us just to sow more seed. Just to sow more seed. There's going to be more failure and more rejection in the responses to people that we talk to about Jesus than acceptance. Now, am I calling you to rent a bullhorn and to go stand outside on the sidewalk next to Lambo and yell at people? when they, Not at all. Not at all. Here's, here's an effective way for people to share the hope of Jesus. Number one, love the people you encounter. Love the people you encounter. Number two, be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. Live your life in such a way where you actually put into practice the things you believe. Don't just believe them intellectually. Apply them in your life. Love everyone you encounter and put into practice the things you believe. And people will notice the difference in your life. And I promise you, people will ask you about it. Now, they may not know enough to sit, come up to you and say, hey, tell me about your relationship with Jesus because there's something a lot different about you that I notice when I look at your life. But they'll ask about it in their own way. And then the key is for you to leverage that conversation through the loving relationship that you have with somebody to leverage that conversation into how Jesus has changed your life. And if only one out of four soils is going to produce the results that God wants, that means we need to love more people. That means we need to be intentional about the lives that we live, making sure we're actually living out what we say we believe in very real, invisible, and tangible ways. Now, some of you have tried this, and you're a little bit dejected right now because you've tried this, and you're like, you know... Brian, I've done that, but 
It's not really getting the results that I want. I'm not really having the conversations that I want. And I can't think of any time I've actually helped somebody like ask God to come in their life. I, I just don't know that it's working. And I just want to remind you, there's people who follow Jesus. We're not going to be judged. We're not going to be held accountable on sales. It's not our job to change anybody's heart. It's not our job to change anybody's life. It's not our job to convince anybody to follow Jesus. We're going to be judged and we're going to be held accountable on leads. We will be judged on the leads we generate, not on the sales we close. It's God's job to close the sale. It's not ours. It's our job to set the stage and to tell the story. If we're going to see the life change that we want to see, we need to tell a lot of people. And we need to love a lot of people. And we need to live intentional, authentic lives where we live out the hope we profess. Now, in our culture, it just so happens in our culture, one of the most effective ways to do this with people when they, when they ask what's going on in your life, what's different, one of the most effective ways to do that in our culture is through an invitation to church. When people are talking about spiritual things in our culture, that's just how a lot of people are receptive, especially in this region of the country. The church is still understood to be a place where there can be found spiritual answers and spiritual truth. And our desire at Lakeside is to see the Lakeshore region transformed with the hope of Jesus. That's our desire here at Lakeside, that we would see the Lakeshore region transformed with the hope of Jesus. So if we're this barrel, if Lakeside is this barrel, what we want to see is we want to see this barrel filled with lives and decisions for Jesus. Not because of Lakeside. We don't care about our endeavors. It's all because of the hope of Jesus. It's all for the kingdom of God, which is bigger than us. Our desire is to see that. And the reality is, when we're operating as we operate, we get to a level and we can, we can operate everything. We get to a level where people are coming in and we're good. We've got positions staffed, we're ready for them, we're engaging, we're great. But if our prayer is going to be realized and we're going to see God transform the lakeshore and he's going to choose to use us as part of that, which is our prayer, then what we're going to see is new people are opportunities, but opportunities become obligations. Because if we don't fill those opportunities, then we can't minister to people effectively. And if we can't minister to people effectively, God in his goodness is not going to continue to bring us people that we can't effectively serve to help them move move one step closer to Jesus and reach those far from him. We're going to hit a capacity. We're going to hit a ceiling that we cannot break through. And God's going to send people elsewhere. Now, God in his goodness will never cut this process off entirely. But if we're not careful, what will happen is we will miss opportunities to help people move one step closer to Jesus and reach those far from Him if we do not engage. If we see opportunities and we see things that we're like, man, there's an opportunity for ministry right there, or there's, this is a really cool endeavor that I really wish Lakeside would do, but we do nothing to fill it, we'll continue to miss opportunities until people come along and say, God's equipped me. 
I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the confidence in the world. But God's given me a passion. God's given me a vision. I'm good at this. And I see an opportunity. And somebody sees that. And they say to themselves, well, if they can do that, I mean, I might not be as good as they are, but I, I like this. And I'm passionate about this. And God's given me a desire to do this. And there's an opportunity here. So I'm going to do this. And then we get everything plugged up for a while, which is kind of a comfortable feeling. But our work's never done. Because the need for people to have a relationship with Jesus is never done. And now, there's a new opportunity. And what we've seen is more people are one step closer to Jesus. More people who didn't have the hope of Jesus have a relationship with Him. And with opportunity comes the question, will we rise up? Will we work? Will we move? Will we head out of our comfort zone? to be the people that God has called us to be and use the gifts that God has called us to use to help people and ourselves in the process move one step closer to Jesus and reach those far from Him. This is our opportunity and this is our obligation. God, I pray that we would be people who serve you well. I pray that we would be people who have a passion for the things you're passionate about. God, that we would never throw in the towel we would understand there are going to be a lot more people who reject the message of love and hope that we proclaim than accept it. But we never become deterred. And that we would rise up as your servants and say, God, transform the lake shore. And use us in the process. God, that we would sow more seed, that we would live lives of love to everyone we encounter. That we would put into practice the things we believe. And we would point everyone to you. That we would respond to the things that we're passionate about. 
we wouldn't wait for someone else. And God, collectively, that we would see you work in powerful ways. That we would see souls transformed. We would see families changed. We would see hope to those who are hopeless. We would see love to those who feel unloved. And you would be honored and glorified, Jesus. That is our hope. That is our prayer. Use us, we pray. In your name, amen.